most important book of our current political era. That is how J.D. Vance described The New Class War, Saving Democracy from the Managerial Elite by Michael Lind. National Review praised it, The New York Times slammed it, and there's been reviews everywhere in between. And we interviewed him today, so you can make up your own mind on it soon. Welcome back to Banter, a weekly podcast from the American Enterprise Institute. You just heard Matt Weinset. I am Max Frost. Next, you'll hear from Max Tui. Thank you all for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed last week's special 400th episode with Governor Jeb Bush. If you haven't listened, go do it. Great interview with Governor Bush. Today, we're joined by Michael Lind. Michael Lind is a founder of New America, a major think tank in D.C. He's a professor at University of Texas, and he's written over a dozen books, and he's taught at both Harvard and Johns Hopkins. I don't know about you all, but when Matt talked about mixed reviews and controversy about a book, my interest is peaked. And I'll tell you this, after our conversation with Michael Lind today, you will want to read this book. So without further ado, here is Michael Lind. Governor Haley, thanks for coming in. It's my pleasure to be here. Thank you. Mr. George Will, welcome. Glad to be with you. Arthur Brooks, welcome back. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. Ambassador Wolfowitz, pleasure to have you. Nice to be here. Thanks. Ms. Peggy Noonan, thank you for coming. Guys, thank you very much for having me. Mr. Bolton, it's an honor for you to be with us today. Glad to be with you. Thanks for having me. J.D. Vance, welcome. Thank you for having me. Mike, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. I'm a pleasure to be here. So I really enjoyed your book called The New Class War, but uh, what is this new class war? Who's actually waging war on who here? Well, I try to put uh, the current populist rebellions in politics on both sides of the Atlantic in the context of the larger uh, history of the Industrial Revolution of the last uh, 200 years and to do it in a 40,000-word essay. So I have to skim over a lot of material Mm -hmm. in a short period of time. Uh, It's based on a a fairly wide-read essay I wrote in uh, 2017 for American Affairs Mm -hmm. of the same title, The New Class War, where I uh, uh, tried to apply uh, the – ex-Trotskyist and early conservative theorist James Burnham's idea that Marx had been wrong, that the proletariat would not take over, uh, and that the capitalist class, defined as the small business owner, Ebenezer Scrooge, uh, owner-operator class, had been succeeded in the 20th century by the managerial class, which Burnham defined very broadly, not limiting it to the private sector, but also including the military, uh, the executive uh, bureaucracy, and uh, nonprofit agents. And and I think that's right. So Uh, there's broad outlines. That class, the managerial elite, the think tank class, perhaps like us, it's the managerial elite kind of waging the war on the proletariat. Kind of well, the, so so the war is contingent on circumstances. You know, the two major classes in the pre-modern agrarian system had been landlords and peasants, mm-hmm. uh, and they got d- displaced. Beginning in Britain, the first industrial country, by these two new classes of capitalists who were succeeded by managers of large enterprises that they did not themselves necessarily own, mm-hmm. and uh, the proletariat, that is, urban landless. Workers and and you had quite vicious uh, war uh, uh, and and labor violence in Britain. Beginning in Britain, the United States had the bloodiest labor violence of any industrializing country in the eighteen eighties and nineties and early nineteen hundreds. Uh, I argue in the book that you then had a the first class peace consisting of what uh, social scientists call the post war settlements mm-hmm. in the U.S. and in Western Europe, and they took different forms in the U.S. of, uh, of Harry Truman and Dwight Eisenhower and, and of Churchill's uh, post-1945 Britain and De, Gaulle, and De Gaulle's France, uh, uh, Adenauer's uh, Christian Democratic Germany. But they all involved 
a kind of a three-way social compact among the industrial capitalists, the industrial workers, and the farmers as well, who are much more important as a percentage of the population in the 40s and 50s than they are now, and the government. And that resulted, uh, at least in part, it contributed to the golden age of post-war capitalism. And then I argue, and it's not original with me, I'm, I'm, I'm simply fitting it into this larger schema, that you had the shift towards neoliberalism, which was a bipartisan shift. The thing to remember and to emphasize in discussing my book is I'm not talking about left and right. I'm talking about consensuses in different periods. So the New Deal consensus was shared by Dwight Eisenhower and Richard Nixon. The neoliberal consensus uh, was pioneered by Reagan and Thatcher, but then it was adopted by Tony Blair and by Bill Clinton and uh, Barack Obama. Uh, and it was uh, a shift towards uh, – uh, more market deregulation towards uh, more trade, uh, more immigration on the one hand. So it moved in a kind of libertarian direction in economics. And at the same time, you had this cultural deregulation, uh, this uh, liberalization of the culture. Uh, after World War II, in all of these Western countries, there had been a fair degree of censorship of, of pornography, a deference towards the churches in, in Europe and the US. Uh, and there was this expressive individualist rebellion of the 60s and 70s and uh, backed up by the courts and you know dismantling the fairness doctrine and broadcasting and getting rid of regulations on 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 censorship so uh, so i argue that the pendulum swung in favor of what can be called a liberalitarianism uh, not my term people have, have used that uh, sort of socially liberal uh, libertarian uh, on economics and to my mind that's the backdrop for brexit trump these rebellions because it leaves out substantial parts of the populations in Western countries, which have the opposite. They're more culturally conservative and more economically statist, not necessarily liberal, but yeah. but you know they, they're in favor of, of government protection. Now, Mike, a lot of people have described you as kind of an intellectual voice to the Trumpist populism, not Trump himself, but kind of this populism that's pushed him to the front. Yet at the same time, I mean, you did a master's at Yale. You've got a JD from Texas. You founded a big DC think tank. How did you get to this point where now you're looking at it and you're criticizing the managerial elite or you're saying, here's all the problems with the managerial elite, when by most metrics, it would appear that you are the managerial, managerial elite? Yeah, I'm part of the uh, college credentialed overclass that I described. I'm also the grandson of a janitor and a bank teller. And uh, my parents were college educated. My father was first generation, but I grew up in a largely blue collar and rural family in Texas. And so I've seen both sides of the college educated and the uh, working class. And, and let me say something about the definition. I, I use the education as the basis of class stratification, not money. Mm -hmm. And this confuses people. Why? I don't know. Because historically, class has not been defined by money. All satire, going back to Juvenal and the, the Roman satirist, uh, is based on the lower class person who makes lots of money above uh, his or her station. That's the Beverly Hillbillies, right? Yeah. They're not upper class uh, just because they have a million dollars. Mm -hmm. so, so I think that in this uh, managerial order, your ranking in the class system is not based so much on uh, what you personally own. It's based on the uh, resources you have access to by virtue of your accreditation and your skills. And the most important skills are those that allow you to succeed in and operate in large bureaucratic organizations. 
Is there a geographic component to the current class war? Because you talk about how it's linked to education, but they're also, I, I know, for example, in college and other settings, you'll have people who went to, who belong to nice country clubs in Connecticut, went to elite prep schools, and they'll look down on someone with equal education who might be from Texas and worth more money, his family, but there's still a, the, the hierarchies in favor of the Connecticut person. Is there something regional about it? There is, uh, but it's very rapidly fading. Uh, in, in I'm almost uh, 58. In my lifetime, uh, the most remarkable transformation has been the nationalization of uh, politics, which is good when it comes to civil rights, but, but not necessarily to other things. Uh, all the way up until the 1990s, I think, uh, there was still a distinct southern upper class that was different from the Northeastern Wasp, Long Island, Lockjaw, upper class. I think this is being erased very quickly. And the main reason it's being erased is the children of these regional upper classes tend to go to uh, the Ivy League schools or the first tier state schools. And, and teaching at a first tier state school, the culture is indistinguishable at this point uh, from, from that of you know one anywhere in the country. Uh, and you see the same phenomenon if you look at the maps of uh, Republican and Democratic voting. If you go back to the middle of the 20th century, the solid South was solid. Downtown Dallas voted like the suburbs and like rural Texas, mm -hmm. right? Now you have this pattern, as I point out in my book, The New Class War, uh, not only in the US, but in the UK, Germany, France, and so on. The cities are liberal or libertarian, and the outer suburbs and rural areas uh, belong to the opposite party. The is there conservative. is there a region in America that has better class relations than others? Like, is there one that stands out to you as you know what the well educated and the wealthy they get along pretty well with the working class around them? Well, the well educated are not all concentrated in San Francisco and New York and Washington and L.A. and Austin and Dallas and Houston, for that matter. So, I think that. The irony is it's the red states that have the least class inequality for the very simple reason uh, it's not their virtue. It's just they don't have that many poor people and they don't have any that many rich people. So, so I think if you're in small town Nebraska, you know, Warren Buffett's area, uh, th there's just naturally more class interchange than there is if you're in D.C. Yeah. Obviously, the next question, though, is if we have all these issues and we have kind of more tension among between the classes and all these economic side effects stemming from it. What should be happening? Is President Trump taking the right approach, even if he is this demagogue, you know, free trade and deregulation? Is this the wrong way to be moving forward? Well, I think you have to distinguish three different things. There's realignment, there's policy reform, and there's reconstruction, that is institutional reconstruction. Now, the basis of my analysis is that unless you rebuild the mass membership grassroots institutions that amplify the power of high school educated working class people. And in the old days, those were trade unions, which conservatives don't like. They were churches, which progressives nowadays don't like. And they were local political machines, which neither progressives nor conservatives <laughs> liked. Uh, but, but, you know, let's face it, that's what amplified the power because the only power that uh, ordinary working class people have is their numbers. They don't have money to donate. They don't have uh, institutional expertise and connections. They don't have scholarly uh, uh, influence. So if you do not, let me put this negatively, if you do not rebuild these institutions that give bargaining power to working class people, then you can do all kinds of things to help them out. Uh, that's the policy reform. 
And you can win majorities like Boris Johnson, you know, with the conservatives by dressing their their values and interests. You know, that's the realignment part. But without the reconstruction part, they are not taking part themselves. They are passive recipients of gifts delivered from above. Uh, it, it's what um, Mike Consul calls in the liberal context, pity charity liberalism. You're doing things for ordinary people and to ordinary people, but not with ordinary mm-hmm. people. And that has been the big change in the last half century. One of the, I'd imagine, reconstruction steps, as you'd label it, that you call for in a recent Wall Street Journal op-ed was returning a lot of the power to national, state, and local legislatures and you know, bringing power closer to the people and those electing our officials. But that is a power structure change. What should be guiding our next steps? Because is that enough, just putting it you know, giving more power to local and state legislatures and even our Congress here? Or is there, but what's what's the other ingredient? What's our guiding principles as we do this? Well, I, I think that the first thing you have to do is to break this habit on both the right and the left and in the center as well, that whatever your reform is, it should be done by, at the national level. Uh, you know, I find this with, uh, with the younger generation of students now that I'm a teacher. Uh, well, you know, we need a bike lane. So Congress should mandate bike lanes and the federal government should pay for them. Yeah. Right. Uh, I live in Austin, Texas. They passed a rather annoying plastic bag ban. Mm. I, I have to say I was annoyed by it. So Governor Abbott and the Republicans in the legislature, since Austin's a liberal city, overruled it. So the thing is, both liberals and conservatives, Democrats and Republicans, uh, are perfectly fine with imposing the same rule for 320 million people as long as they like that rule. So that's the first habit we have to break. The second thing I think is that even the local level is way, way too big, right? Uh, there, there have been lots of studies, uh, and I cite some of them in the New Class War by political scientists, it's not a partisan thing, saying there are diseconomies of scale when a town grows above 50,000 or 100,000 people. You know, once you pass that 100,000 mark, you get a separate planning bureaucracy in, in the city. You know, essentially, you can't talk to the mayor anymore. Uh, the real t- real estate developers kind of take over and you, you uh, get this uh, multi- multiplying uh, alienation by the voters. And it, it so happens that Chicago, its ward system is based on 50,000 people <clears throat> and they have an enormous city council consequently. And political scientists since the 1900s who tend to be centralizing technocrats have always tried to abolish it. But but there's a lot of argument that it was you, Chicago was able to integrate wave after wave of European immigrants and then many African-American immigrants and even white, white uh, immigrants from the South because of these wards, you know, that you had this federal structure. So I think one thing we need to do is let's look at cities. Why can't neighborhoods have more responsibility for things like schools? I don't think there are any economies of scale in schools, for example. I think we're all sympathetic in the abstract, bringing the power down closer to the people. But I, I was a little struck by some of the examples you give in your book of of cases where you have different leagues of local people organizing for change. Was the A group of Christians' moms wanted to ban books they considered obscene. One of those was just the catcher in their eye. Seems a little... I mean, don't we run the risk a little bit of just creating thousands of little local tyrannies where maybe people don't want all this local control if that's just going to impact their lives 
Huh. Yeah, it, well, it's a trade-off, and that's why I say in the book that basic civil rights should be national. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was born into Texas in 1962. It was two more years before segregation was struck down in voting, and then another year in, I, I mean, in, in Civil Rights Act, and then you had the Voting Rights Act, 1965. Yeah, so so sometimes you have to have the power of the central state in order to strike down local tyranny. Uh, but on the other hand, you can go to the other extreme, where Essentially, every decision, either through strings attached to federal funding or through federal judicial decisions or through congressional statutes, every decision is made in Washington. And why even have elections for the city council? Why have state legislatures if all they're going to do is approve bond issues for roads and schools? If if every other decision has been – including censorship – uh, there's going to be censorship. There always will be uh, some kind of censorship of of, of elite, you know, pedophilia and, and you name it, even if you're a very libertarian. So the question is, well, who makes that decision? Is it a five out of nine majority on the Supreme Court? Uh, is it a you know, 51% majority of Congress? You know, or is it the state legislature? Is it local city councils? When I was a kid, you still had banned in Boston. I think Lady Chatterley's lover, mm-hmm. you know, had been banned by because we don't think of it nowadays. We think of Boston as very liberal, but there was an old Yankee Congregationalist Puritan tradition, and and they were very puritanical. So you know, the, yeah, there's a trade-off, but but I think we've gone too far in sacrificing local sense of of uh, morality and and uh, authority to expressive individualism. I say this as an author. I mean, maybe right. there'd be some town in Mississippi that would burn my book, The New Class War. Right. What is so in the New York Times recent review of New Class War? The author Anand pointed out that. Your narrative, your explanation, your argument excludes certain racial minorities because you spend a lot of time talking about the white working class and the educated elites. How do, let's say, the racial minorities concentrated in cities like Baltimore, St. Louis, Chicago, Detroit, how do they fit into this picture and changing scene? Well, the author of the New York Times book review, which was a bizarre ad hominem attack on me personally by someone I met the author. I'd never heard of the author. He seems to be some kind of time magazine journalist or something. So he accused, he said, I wasn't sensitive enough to race and gender. So I Googled his name, uh, a non Doratus, I think it is. And I instantly found a essay in time magazine on Bernie Sanders where he said Bernie Sanders isn't sensitive enough to race and gender. So he's one of these liberal hacks who essentially accuses everyone uh, who doesn't hold his political views of being a racist and sexist. Right. Uh, he, he lied about my book, The New Class War. Uh, throughout the book, when I'm talking about the populists in uh, Europe and the U.S., I say it is disproportionately white, but not exclusively. I repeatedly say this. I have the statistics. Uh, One-third of BAME – Black and Middle Eastern Britons voted for Brexit. Mm. Nearly a third of uh, U.S. Latinos voted for Trump. So nowhere do I equate these working class populists with native whites alone. They're the majority, but they're not exclusive. I also have a long discussion about why you get immigrants and members of minorities voting with white overclass elites in London and New York and San Francisco. And that's because their conditions are getting better, right? I mean, if you move from a poor country, you know, to San Francisco and you're treated miserably as a maid, you're still better off maybe than you were in Guatemala. The question is, do you envision your children and grandchildren 
being in San Francisco, working as maids and voting for the same party as you know the household that employs you. I don't think that's going to happen. I think the majority of the successful immigrants uh, will mo move out of these expensive cities to the uh, working class uh, exurbs and suburbs. If you look at the assimilation and intermarriage rate of American Latinos, it's about the same as it was for Irish Americans and German Americans and Italian Americans. After the third or fourth generation, they lose their ethnic identity. So, so the New York Times Review, different groups will respond differently to my book. Mm -hmm. And the book that the group that will be most hostile will be the neoliberal Clinton Obama Democrats because I'm going after their neoliberal economics and their identity politics. So I, I wasn't surprised by the review, but it was a very dishonest review anyway. I did see in the Financial Times Ed Luce gave it a nice shout out, and he's kind of a quintessentially. Um, well, yeah, he wrote a book probably. the other year called "The Retreat of Western Liberalism." A, yeah, a total like woe is me, woe is to the neoliberal elite. Yeah, so 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 so, 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 so some neoliberals will like it, but I do want to say I, at the same time as reading your book, I've been reading "Hillbilly Elegy" by J.D. Vance, and it's interesting because you're both talking about similar things, but J.D. Vance comes at it with a strong cultural criticism and says, this is, this is a function of culture, you know, not purely, but you have the factories leaving at the same time you have this culture that's kind of mired in an inability to adapt and these kind of this backwards looking way of life. And, you know, I, I don't know exactly what he would say, but, you know, a lot of people, a lot of conservatives would say, well, you know, you have issues in your hometown, you should just move. And you kind of throw cold water on, on that argument. So do you think culture is not very important here, that there's more systemic things that are that we have to deal with? No, I, JD's a friend of mine. He's hosting me here in Washington, D.C. at the Hudson Institute oh, yeah. uh, uh, tomorrow afternoon. And I don't, I don't think there's that much daylight between us. Culture shapes people's behavior uh, and it can be maladaptive. You know, you can have a culture that, that makes you poorly prepared when situations change. But if you trace back the origins of that culture, usually it developed in the context of some kind of prior system. So uh, J.D. and I are, are both descendants in part of Scots-Irish Appalachian Ozark hillbillies. You know, I've, I'm about one-fourth Scots-Irish all the way back to the 1740s. Uh, and you had a very anarchic, under-institutionalized, violent environment. And so you get a kind of honor culture and focusing on short-term uh, gratification, which you find in lawless environments. You find it in inner cities. You find it in some developing countries. It's not a necessary part of Scots-Irish culture. Uh, William McKinley came from a Scots-Irish family that happened to move to the Yankee North and assimilated into these Yankee Puritan values of discipline and hard work and, and nonviolent conflict resolution and so on, and became an abolitionist and, and a Union Lincoln soldier and, and uh, then a Lincoln Republican. So cultures can change. And I think the problem with uh, the left-right debate is the right tends to think that culture is this immutable character, or it's not, it's not influenced by economics and by political structures. The left doesn't want to talk about it at all. It's all just money, right? Culture makes no difference in behavior. It's all material self-interest. Completely. I haven't read J.D. Vance's book yet, but I know from, there's the, another conservative writer, Kevin D. Williamson, talks about culture a lot, and he puts it a lot more on just individual behavior, the lack of personal responsibility. And he doesn't really credit at all the idea that it was NAFTA and free trade that really hurt these communities a ton. It was really just they need to they need to pull themselves up a little bit more. And I mean, what is the alternative situation where we don't have NAFTA? We don't is is the world now that much better if we don't have so much free trade? It seems like free trade. Most economists say it's a unqualified good, right? Well, most economists have become economists as PhD economists 
without taking a single course in economic history in the United States. I mean, can you believe that? You can actually become a PhD economist and never have studied how the U.S. was industrialized, how Britain was industrialized, you know, Germany and so on. There's this rival school of institutional economics going back to the 19th century. Uh, it's banned now from U.S. economics departments, which said economics is basically empirical. So let's see, how did the British go from being an agrarian society to being the first industrial nation? How did the U.S. and Germany and Japan catch up with industrial Britain? And when you look at that, turns out the government did much of the work, mm -hmm. Right. It, it nurtured the infant industries of, of Britain, the US, Germany, uh, behind a wall of tariffs, sometimes using subsidies. It built infrastructure, canals, railroads, uh, the interstate highway system. The military was the first adopter and often the state capitalist for a whole range of uh, technologies from the steam engine, uh, nuclear energy, the jet engine, the computer. So libertarians and I'm sorry to offend you know, you guys, if, if you're libertarians, Not really. uh, your audience, but I, uh, probably the most infamous article I ever wrote, at least from the libertarian perspective, was one for Salon a few years ago. And I said, why are there no libertarian countries? I mean, there were uh, communist countries, for God's sake. Yeah. Communist countries do work. They work badly. The Soviet Union worked badly, but it defeated Hitler, right? And it you know, launched space rockets and, and it fed its people. North Korea feeds its people very poorly, but it functions. They don't all die. So you would expect there to be one, you know, Chile or Peru or somewhere, Norway, there'd be like one libertarian country and there isn't. All modern industrial nation states have mixed economies. It's a mixture of the private sector, public sector and public investment, not just the welfare state, mm -hmm. but investment infrastructure and R&D and things like that and the nonprofit sector. So we really have what I call a mixed enterprise economy. And so therefore, the whole debate about free markets versus socialism is kind of silly. Uh, there's a synthesis. I love that. First of all, I've read that article. I'm not sure if you guys have. Yeah. It's it's excellent. Oh, that's great. You would think that there's 190 countries out there, right? One <laughs> right. And if you're pledging well. your, if you if your entire political system of belief is based on something that's never been tried, that's a lot of faith. I'll give you credit. That's a lot of faith for something that's never been tried. But one thing you also say is, if suppose it were tried, who wants to live in a country that has decriminalized drugs, where public education isn't available, even basic goods such as a common defense are in some libertarian circles are are denied you know is all these tenets of libertarianism they don't sound like it would be that appealing of a country so i'm not sure why libertarianism has caught so much traction is it just because it's a sort of non-confrontational political belief system where in, around your friends it might sound cool it's it's like you do your thing man i'll do mine and it's kind of – it's laid back like that. Why is it so no, popular? I, I, I think it's deeper than that. And, and I think the difference comes out in some of the debate about liberalism broadly defined, small l, between you know, with Patrick Deneen and anti-liberals yeah. and, and the pro-liberals. Uh, I, I think you can actually make the case that Marxist socialists, that uh, most centrist liberals mm -hmm. or progressives – and libertarians have an identical moral vision. It's just the means for realizing it uh, vary. And the basic moral vision is there's this inner self. It exists prior to society. 
So you were, as an infant, you're born with this fully developed inner self with personal preferences mm -hmm. and, and all of this. You were then oppressed by your family, your teachers, your neighborhoods, your national culture, your class. And so liberation is the goal, liberation of the inner self. From this, you're almost instantly brainwashed and hypnotized the moment the little baby is born. And for both the Marxist socialists and uh, a lot of progressives and libertarians, the ultimate goal of history is a global society of freely contracting individuals. And that includes free love. It includes liberation from lifelong marriage. If you go back to that, was not so much Marx, but Engels, that was part of part of his worldview. He thought get rid of the family as well as the nation. Yeah. So, so I, I think it, it's it. There's this deep, and it's, it's been the dominant theme in Western culture since the 1970s. That is, the self is not something that is constructed and socially situated in a good way. Right. That is, you have these duties, but they're not imposed on you from outside. They constitute you. Yeah. You would not be the same person if you rejected those duties. Instead, there's this kind of ultimately 19th century romantic notion that I have this inner self that I must express at all costs. And if that means blowing up the family and, and, uh, and class for that matter and, and the nation state to be a citizen of the world, then then that's the objective. Yeah. It's like if you use every external circumstance as some type of shackle, kind of keep right. your true self down. Uh, so as much as we've just poured cold water all over libertarians, I do have one question about a, a funny line in the book. You say that government by judiciary tends to be a dictatorship of overclass libertarians in robes. Now I have to stick up for the libertarians a little bit. If you talk to anyone, any libertarian around DC, they do not feel like they have power at all. Like Even with the Supreme Court argue, arguably being libertarian, they don't really view the idea that libertarians rule the policy to be anywhere close to to accurate. Well, it's compared to 50 years ago. Uh, so, you know, in the last uh, few decades, the Supreme Court has struck down essentially all regulations on, on campaign finance. The libertarian side, we call it the liberal side, is really the libertarian side on abortion, on gay rights, on everything. And uh, yeah, I support much of it, but it's, it's libertarian. Right. You know, has been has won. So I think, you know, clearly compared to the middle of the 20th century, uh, the court has just, you know, taken the scythe and just gone through wiping out on labor uh, laws. They've sided consistently with uh, management against uh, uh, labor unions. So, yeah, it's, it's libertarianism. It's not extreme what they call minarchism, where you have nothing but the Coast Guard and, you know, maybe a cop. But yeah, it's, it's, it's libertarian compared to everything else. Now, unfortunately, we're just about out of time, but there's one question I really want to ask you about before we go. So to bring it back to the policy focus here, something that a lot of people are talking about now is the gig economy. And there's all these attempts to you know, force companies to provide benefits to their gig workers, whether it's Uber, Amazon delivery, Grubhub, whatever it may be. So where do you come down on that? What should be the government's role in compelling these companies with freely contracting individuals? Who many of whom say they're doing it out of convenience. There's a few extra hours here and there. It's you know I like it because I can be home with my kid during the day and do this at night, whatever it may be. So is this the kind of place where you should have a government stepping in and saying we need intervention, we need people to be protected, or are these companies creating a tremendous good and people are freely contracting and therefore it's whatever? I don't think you can freely contract uh, with a massive corporation or industry. Uh, that's why you need some kind of collective bargaining where workers pool. Their, their ability. If you're a 
gig driver and you're economically desperate, you're not really negotiating with Uber or Lyft. That's not realistic. However, I'm also, as I say in the, my book, The New Class War, uh, I don't want Washington to prescribe every wage and every benefit for every industry. I think that's that's excessive statism. So ideally, you would go back to a system where you have sector by sector. There are negotiations between representatives of industry and representatives of workers, and that can and should take different forms in different industries. It may very well be that in the transportation sector, if, if the workers who had pooled their bargaining power could work out a deal with the employers, uh, then you might have a majority of gig workers. Uh, if it's the nursing aid industry, I don't see how gig economy works with nurses. So you might have a, a different set of wages and benefits. So I think that should be worked out. Uh, and that's that's the, the basis of countervailing power that I defend in the book. That is, the government should be the broker uh, and set up these negotiations between pooled workers and uh, pooled employers in some cases. The government should not do it directly. But on the other hand, you have to have some kind of bargaining power on the labor side. Otherwise, it's just despotism by the employers. Well, Mike, thank you so much for coming on the show. Congratulations on, on the upcoming release of your new book. Is it available for order yet? It's available for pre-order. Pre-order. And tomorrow, uh, everyone should retweet it and uh, <laughs> go online and buy it uh, directly. By the time this airs, <laughs> look at New Class War by Michael Lynn. Buy it, tweet it. I think you'll really enjoy it. Mike, um, thank you so much for coming on. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Michael Lind, and thank you, as always, for tuning in. If you liked this podcast, please continue to leave reviews and ratings and comments on iTunes and email us at banter at AEI.org. We always love to hear from you. We got a familiar segment this week, Watch, Read, Listen, where we all recommend something that we watched, read, or listened to in the past week. Tui, why don't you go first? Thank you, Matt. I'm going to do a read this week. Today I read Norm Ornstein, resident scholar at AEI's book review of Ezra Klein's New release called Why We're Polarized. Norm Ornstein highlighted a few fascinating points about the state of our politics in this country today. Number one, voters are more motivated by antipathy toward the other party as opposed to affinity toward their own. So when you wonder why voters stick with a figure through seemingly inconceivable offenses, it is because they're not motivated by who this person is, but by who the opposition is. So I think that's very important to understand the current political moment we're in. As a great man once said, liberals hate markets and conservatives hate whatever liberals like. I told you that. Didn't I? Were you the great man who said it? Well, I did, I'm the great man that repeated it. I think it's a Winston uh, Churchill quote. It, no, it's Brian Kaplan. Brian Kaplan's <laughs> axiom of George Mason economist, he says that the... The left is anti-market and the right is anti-left. There you go. My read is actually very related to, and just in case you listeners at home all wonder if we all actually like and respect each other, my read is a recommendation that I got from Max Frost, post-war Tony Jutt. I'm about 100 pages in, really enjoying it so far. And one of the astounding things I saw was that a poll taken in West Germany after World War II still said that 37% of West Germans affirmed that it was better for Germany to have no Jews on its territory. And then in 1952, 25% of West Germans admitted to having a, quote, good opinion of Hitler. And I, that's one of those things I just never would have thought about before, where you almost wonder how it's even possible after total annihilation and unconditional surrender in the war, that that huge of a segment of the population in the American and British occupied portion of the country still felt that strongly. So I don't know. 
I guess it's optimistic almost to think it is only because of this negative polarization that, that we hear about. Because otherwise, I mean, that that is still pretty astounding to me. Well, one of the things I took away from it was that there was no forced reckoning in Germany about their, at least in Western Germany, about what they did in World War II until way later, maybe the 80s or even the 90s, if not the early 2000s. It took a long time in his telling for them to actually come around to it because we didn't want to alienate them. We wanted them on our side. Meanwhile, in East Germany, many former Nazi officials became communist officials in the GDR. So it took a long time for them. Well, I think it shows how political tides can all of a sudden purge any sense of reason among a population. Yeah, I mean, they did try the denazification and there, there were different plans to, to really force them to reckon with it. But yeah, that quickly took a backseat, I think, to the realization that we needed a strong Germany again and Germany on our side because the Soviet menace was just all encompassing. And I'll come through the read as well. My read was for class this week. It's a classic reading. Milton Friedman... The social responsibility of business is to increase its profits. And what he says in there, you know, it's kind of a catch-all, but he says the corporation should be, A, it's immoral for them to be using the capital invested in them by the public for ends that are not dictated to them by the public, which is one argument. And then he said, and he says it's, that's inherently undemocratic. If you're going to give a company your money, you're going to invest, you're going to buy their stock. You're doing that under the express idea that they're going to use it to maximize profit. And he says in there, profits should be maximized within legal and social norms. So that's the big catch-all. So to me, this kind of gets back to, I think at one point a few months ago, we talked about the MBA, where look, if you don't support the MBA operating in China, boycott the MBA. You know, but consumers do have a lot of power and they can use it. And that's how you shape norms. So I don't think, you know, the corporation should do everything it possibly can in the name of profit. But I do think they should do it with what people deem acceptable, what the government deems acceptable. Yeah, for a second, I was thinking that people want social responsibility from their companies. So when you were saying they, they're giving their money, hard-earned money to the companies to maximize profit, is not really. I think people increasingly are saying there are many stakeholders to a company, and one of them's community, one of them's the environment. You need to contribute to both. But then that is caught sort of by the second part of within acceptable cultural and social norms. Yeah, which, which is incredibly important. That's the, the issue. This yeah. class I'm taking is all internationally focused. So the issue, though, is you're talking about one that we, you know, all these case studies, the Union Carbide in Bhopal, India, they killed potentially hundreds of thousands of people, I think was the actual number, with a horrible chemical accident. They were acquitted in American courts and paid a small, well, relatively small settlement in, in Indian courts. The issue is when Western companies are operating in developing countries where they don't have the same ethical or legal norms that we would have over here, and you got to figure out a way to enforce those upon companies operating outside of your jurisdiction without compromising their competitiveness. Because unfortunately, too, if we're saying, you know, you can't go operate in the Congo because of human rights issues, well, there's probably a Chinese company that will, that will go do it and won't be held to account the same way any company here would be because it's publicly listed and we have a free media, et cetera. Yeah, but the issue with this, too, though, I think, is if I invest my money in Apple or Starbucks or something, it's because I expect them and I want them to go sell more coffee and computers. Not, And that it's when these companies are under this pressure and this idea that this Milton Friedman essay is so evil, it's when these companies then take on additional responsibilities to like fight climate change or something bigger than that. And some people are saying they need to. Well, and one way to interpret the Friedman thing is he's saying that's undemocratic. Yeah. Because if you're, giving, if you're giving them money and they have to do it within the, within the law, if the people actually wanted some further environmental human rights standard, whatever, it would be either encompassed in the law or encompassed in norms Either way, the companies would be acting in everybody's best interest by pursuing their profit. Well, I'm happy you recommended it. I had two different classmates in my political theory major, both write essays or both write their theses on 
the that essay and how we need to get away from this stakeholder or get away from the shareholder theory and move to this broader stakeholder theory. So what's the recommendation? It's Milton Friedman's The Social Responsibility of Business is to Increase Its Profits, back from 1970, New York Times Magazine. And mine is Post-War by Tony Judd. And mine is Norm Ornstein's review of Ezra Klein's new book. So give it all a read. Thank you all for tuning in to Banter. We hope that you enjoy. We look forward to bringing you another episode of Banter. Thank, Thank you. you all.